This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The 20th century is just behind us. It is almost as if it is still here with us. Historical perspectives on events so massive as the Second World War in the history of the 20th century are still issues that are, well, very close to our modern consciousness but essential to our current understanding. That's the focus today for Thinking in Public. Dr. Andrew Roberts, born in 1963, is a graduate of Cambridge University from which he received his Doctor of Philosophy. Many Americans know him already by his writings, and in the English-speaking world, he is known as one of the preeminent historians in terms of his writings, including most recently the best-selling book, The Storm of War, A New History of the Second World War. Dr. Andrew Roberts, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you very much indeed. You wrote this book, and it in some ways is uh, is a, a trajectory that can be noted in other of your writings. You, you have arrived at the Second World War writing this particular book. What led you to write this book at this time? Well, I've really been uh, studying the Second World War for the last quarter of a century or so. Um, Back in the late 1980s, I started uh, working on a book about Lord Halifax, Winston Churchill, and Neville Chamberlain's Foreign Secretary. And so off and on, I've been uh, writing about and thinking about this uh, period for a long time, and decided really it was the uh, time to try to uh, bring all my thoughts together. Well, indeed you have, and uh, I will argue that your new volume, The Storm of War, is the finest one-volume history of World War II I've ever read, and it's a particular interest of mine, and so uh, I was was anticipating the volume and thrilled to read it. And uh, those of us who've read a lot in the area uh, often think there's not too much that can surprise us, and indeed you cover a lot of familiar territory, but I have to tell you, one of the things I most appreciate about the way you approach the Second World War and other of of the uh, topics of your writing is that you make a point that I think many historians often do not make so clearly, and that is it did not have to happen this way. It it could have happened in in very different ways and with very different historical consequences. Well, that's absolutely right, yes. Um, It really did take the the particular fanaticism of the Nazi creed to uh, send the whole of the world into what was effectively a second European civil war only 25 years after the First World War. And uh, for that to happen, for such a catastrophe to overcome civilization uh, so soon after the First World War was um, something that I think has uh, has deep uh, moral implications for uh, the world as well as obviously military and political and social ones. When you look at World War II coming with the sense of inevitability we do from our position now in the 21st century, and then you look back to that period between those two world wars, and and there are many historians now who are arguing it it was one great world conflict, one great European conflict with a a false peace uh, there in the middle. Uh, When you look at that, how is it that you now from this distance explain how something so catastrophic could happen so soon after the, the catastrophe of the First World War? Well, I don't see it as a false peace. Uh, to do that, I think, would be to condemn the German people to a um, uh, to being seen just purely as uh, as absolute monsters who, no sooner than uh, losing the First World War in 1918, uh, do they uh, set about trying to plan for the next one. That is not what the German people are about, as we've seen really since 
1945, uh, they're a cultured and, and uh, even a pacific people that we've uh, seen, a rather, rather peace-loving people, a democratic people since 1945. No, what actually happened was Nazism, uh, pure and simple. It wasn't... Uh, that the German uh, people themselves have anything inherent in their DNA, in their in their psychological makeup, as it were, that they wanted to uh, unleash a terrible um, war again. It was the fact that they were led by a uh, fanatic whose views were um, were impossible to strip away from war. They meant war. Nazism equals war. Uh, fascism, indeed, uh, equals war. And so there was no way, really, that the world could have escaped by uh, by the 1930s, at least. Well, as we said, you now made the point once again that it did not have to happen this way. There, there could have been credible alternatives. What could have happened between the wars in Germany in particular to have prevented this? In, in other words, what could have prevented the rise of Nazism, or to the contrary, why did it happen? Well, uh, of course, uh, actually, if one is to look at the... Uh, the true uh, reason for the rise of Nazism. You have to look here, um, here in New York, where I am at the moment, and, and Wall Street, and the Great uh, Wall Street crash, the Great Depression, and the inflation that hit Germany even harder than it hit uh, your country. And uh, that, of course, was the uh, dynamic by which uh, Hitler, who until 1923 was only winning about 2.3% of the German popular vote, but by 1932, he was in a position to, uh, to grab power, which, of course, he did when he became chancellor in January 1933. So it is very deeply concerned with the unemployment problem and, uh, and lots of economic factors, which are very rarely uh, properly uh, given their, um, their due. Many people talk about anti-Semitism, quite rightly, of course. Many people talk about the Versailles Treaty. But one has to remember that on their own, these would not have brought the, uh, the Fuhrer to power. It really also took this sense of utter desperation, of uh, a feeling of hatred towards uh, capitalism and, of course, also Bolshevism with much more reason, um, to, uh, to make ordinary Germans feel that, uh, that this uh, fanatic, Adolf Hitler, was their saviour. You mentioned so many things about Hitler and, and drawing insights to the man, the, the, the personality, the historical figure. But one of the things you make clear in your book is, for instance, that, that he actually had this monomaniacal belief that he had been put on earth to do what he did. That's right. And also, uh, when uh, on the 20th of July 1944, the bomb plot failed... He uh, drew the um, the assumption from the fact that he was so nearly killed that actually he was only scratched and bruised. Uh, the astonishing uh, sense that providence was on his side, that wanted him to survive and therefore uh, triumph over his enemies and destroy the Allies. He actually felt, uh, I mean, there are plenty of people who feel that, um, that God is on their side, uh, but he actually felt that he could change the will of God effectively, that he could, um, he could force fate and providence to go down his route through the unalloyed um, act of his willpower. I mean, this really is very, very deeply psychologically disturbed, as we can all understand, but nonetheless, it is something that drove him. Now, you had previously written a book entitled Hitler and Churchill's Secrets of Leadership that was also the, uh, the basis for a BBC documentary series. So you have had an interest in Hitler as well as in Winston Churchill for some time, but I want to stay on Hitler for just a moment, because even as you make that point so, so I think, importantly, that here was a man who, uh, who, who did have his own strange, weird, demented understanding of providence, and even a providence that he could change by the force of his will, this is a man who in fairly recent years 
has been the subject of a lot of historical revisionism, with a good many people, surprisingly, arguing that he was indeed what he thought he was, a military genius. You actually, perhaps uh, uh, better than anyone I have seen, in a very deft way, demonstrate that this was no military genius. Well, no. I mean, his his early um, victories in uh, in the West and obviously in, in Scandinavia and over Poland in 1939 and 1940, uh, really also if you count Yugoslavia and Greece, which fell in uh, seven weeks in 1941, uh, these were an astonishing series of tremendously impressive uh, victories. But um, as I try and point out in The Storm of War, as you kindly say, it uh, they weren't his. Um, the sickle-cut manoeuvre that uh, Eric von Manstein produced, which won the Battle of France, was very much Manstein's. The um, plan to attack Poland was very much Gerd von Rundstedt's. You know, what Hitler was doing was what a politician should do, really, is to oversee the generals and to double-check their plans and to support them when they needed support. Only in 1941 did he start believing um, Joseph Goebbels, his propaganda minister's um, statements, that he was the greatest warlord of all time. And all of these victories came as the result of his willpower, as you mentioned. And so he uh, suffered from the classic hubris of the great commander. One sees it, obviously, with uh, Napoleon before the attack, before his attack on um, Russia 129 years previously, um, where he believes that he can do anything. And, uh, and so he stopped listening to his generals. He would, he would uh, go to meetings with them, spend hours listening to them, but then at the end of the meeting he would do exactly what he'd originally intended to do. And he would pontificate to them. Yes. Uh, he, was a great, uh, he was a great one for showing off his knowledge of railway gauges and tank... Um, uh, calibers and how um, much, uh, how many tons uh, his warships displaced and how fast his planes could go and things. He was what uh, we in England, I don't know if you have the same expression in America, called a, um, a train spotter. And uh, he would be um, uh, he would be very good on all of this kind of thing. But when it actually came to the uh, the logistics for fighting a massive campaign, instead of leaving it up to men who were far greater strategists than he, men like as I mentioned, uh, uh, Manstein and Rundstedt, but look also at Erwin Rommel, at Heinz Guderian, and others, instead of actually trusting these people who had been soldiers and officers in the First World War when he'd only been a corporal. He, uh, again and again, believed that he knew best. One of the most difficult uh, things about reading your book, or any honest assessment of the Second World War, is just the sheer scale of the carnage and, uh, and the horrible decisions uh, and, uh, and failures that produced this, the, the abominable ego, and uh, you'd have to make that plural, egos behind this. But as I, as I read through, it becomes very clear, and, and this is the sense of inevitability that just doesn't come soon enough, but eventually it comes clear that the German uh, general staff knows that the war is lost. Eventually, the German soldier begins to pretty much know that the, the war is lost. But when did Hitler actually know that the war was lost? Oh, he, he didn't really know until uh, the, um, uh, the failure of the Battle of the Bulge in uh, January 1945. So he only discovered an awful lot later. Uh, as you say, the generals knew earlier. They tried to kill him, of course, on, in July 1944 because they knew that he was losing the war. They'd never have done that if he was winning it. And um, 
uh, it's really not until this, this amazing surprise attack, 39 divisional attack, um, to try to get to the River Meuse. In fact, it actually almost reaches the Meuse uh, because it wants to try to get to the Channel. It's turned back by the American and British armies, and um, and at that point he starts to uh, to make arrangements uh, arrangements for um, the uh, for the the, the last. Um, part of the war, which is all about um, uh, scorched earth policy and uh, destroying what remains of German civilization at that stage. You write a great deal about America in a way that Americans probably are not uh, accustomed to reading. For for instance, on page 214 of uh, The Storm of War, you write, when the United States entered the war, she had the world's 17th largest army, numbering 269,023, smaller than that of Romania. She could put only five properly armed, full-strength divisions into the field at a time when Germany wielded 180. The Great Depression had taken a physical toll on American manhood. Even though the army would accept just about anyone sane, over five feet tall, 105 pounds in weight, possessing 12 or more of his own teeth, and free of flat feet, venereal disease, and hernias, no fewer than 40% of Americans failed those basic criteria. Now, I knew and uh, and have read uh, so much to know that America was woefully unprepared to enter this war, but that tends to put it in terms that just about all of us can feel with a, a, a tremendous sense of of uh, of alarm. Um, how was America caught in this position by your reading? Well, again, I mean, with the regard to the uh, to the physical side of things, it was uh, it was the Great Depression again. You know, there was um, there not exactly wide malnutrition across the nation but you know people were not the uh, at their physical best and uh, as a result yes you did have 40 percent of people um, being turned away that wasn't the case uh, later on in the war um but what you also did have was this fabulous sense uh, which you do so often through american history of optimism of the can-do spirit the belief that you uh, are going to win not least by completely outproducing every other nation in the world by the calendar year uh, 1944 when the british had produced 28,000 warplanes and the germans and russians 40,000 warplanes each. America produced no fewer than 98,000 warplanes, almost as much as the rest of the world put together. And so there you have this sense in every area, in liberty ships that are coming out at the rate of one a week, uh, one being made per week. It's it's an astonishing thing, thousands obviously being made, but it only took a week to make a liberty ship. Um, And, and of course, uh, huge amounts of tanks and, uh, and 51 million pairs of boots that you give to the Soviet Union in order to keep them uh, still fighting. This incredible act of uh, productivity is something that effectively arms the democracy. You make another point that I think many Americans, almost by more than benign neglect, but uh, by an an almost uh, force of the will, actually do not want to confront uh, the contribution that Russia made to the war. And and let's just name it, the the Soviet Union. Uh, Its life was on the line in a very different way. And it had historical culpability, especially through Stalin, as to how it became one of Hitler's victims. But at the end of the day, one of the most difficult parts of your book to read is just the carnage that takes place in Russian city and Russian battle after another. And, uh, and, and you make the point very, very clearly that, uh, that Hitler really bled out in the East rather than in the West. 
Yes, I think I think the central statistic of the Second World War, like the one that for me um, says more than anything else, is that for every five Germans killed in combat, by which I, I mean actually on the battlefield as opposed to being bomb, bombed from the air, but for every five German ki- German soldiers killed, four of them die on the Eastern Front. And so, you know, what we, um, the British, you, the Americans, the Canadians and others in the West are doing is effectively killing the fifth German. Uh, The other four are being killed in these appalling battles that you mentioned, uh, the ones on the Eastern Front, the battles of Moscow, of Stalingrad, of Kursk, and of course of Leningrad, where 1.1 million people, soldiers and civilians, died in the siege of Leningrad. Um, A single siege, you know, that is twice as many as um, Britons and Americans who die in the entire war. So it's, uh, it very much has to be uh, placed, the, the, the Soviets bleeding the Germans, and also, of course, the Germans bleeding the Soviets to the extent that 20, some 27 million Russians die in the Second World War. Yes, in fact, uh, toward the end of your book, you're right, it was the Russians who provided the oceans of blood necessary to defeat Germany. And it cannot be re- reiterated enough that out of every five Germans killed in combat, Four died on the Eastern Front. You said, again, that's the central statistic of the Second World War. Earlier, you said, uh, for every American who died, the Japanese lost six people, the Germans 11 and the Russians 92. I just think uh, those of us in the United States need to, need to hear that. Yeah, they do, but at the same time, of course, one has to remember that, uh, that tanks and planes and ships uh, win wars as well as people, and, uh, and those statistics would be almost reversed uh, when it comes to those ratios would be reversed when it comes to the mm-hmm. United States and the sheer production. At the same time, of course, uh, you are fighting a massive war in the Pacific, which, uh, which uh, you win pretty much single-handedly with the help of 15 million Chinese, but nonetheless uh, uh, not much else. Um, you're also bombing the German towns and cities from, uh, with the USAAF, um, uh, causing absolute destruction with war, German war production, which is vital because if 70% of the Luftwaffe hadn't been facing the, um, facing the West, trying to defend German cities against um, British bomber commands and American uh, USAAF, um, they would have been used against the Russians and might well have won the battles of Stalingrad, Kursk, and so on. And so, and, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, you are um, you're putting enormous amount of um, of uh, tanks and uh, aircraft into Russia, um, going using the the, the um, convoys up in the uh, up in the. Arctic. So in all, the American contribution is massive, but fortunately, of course, nothing like so massive just in terms of blood as uh, the other countries. And that's the reason why I, I think the, the point I wanted to make is that Americans, I think, would look at World War II quite differently if we were looking at it with the same scale of, of, of loss that was experienced by many of our allies, even erstwhile allies in the, in the midst of that war. Uh, for many of these countries, it was a matter of life and death for a way that Americans didn't really perceive it uh, quite to be so. Well, that's right. I mean, some countries, the Philippines, Poland, lost um, over 10% of their actual, um, of, their, of their numbers, of their population yeah, during the Second World War. I mean, these are vast figures. You are now a country of uh, 300 million today. If you were to lose 30 million people, you would, of course, look at um, any conflict as completely uh, um, through completely different um, eyes. You, you did, of course, it, it's worth remembering, of course, in the middle of the 19th century, lose 
600,000 killed in your civil war, and that yes. was from a country that was an awful lot smaller, about uh, 18 or 20 million. So, I mean, in that sense, America had already gone through the cataclysmic um, uh, bloodletting that, uh, that the rest of the world went through in the 20th century. And I thank you as a, as a British historian, put your finger on something that Americans may know, even if they do not articulate, and that is that we look to World War II as a war of great victory, but we still look to the Civil War as a war of great tragedy. The Second World War looms in the American consciousness as this massive endeavor that brought Americans together with other allies in the world to defeat Hitler, and of course to defeat the Japanese Empire as well. We have a very positive memory about the Second World War. For America, the lesson of the Second World War is that we could do this, we would do this, and on the other side of it, we would emerge as a much stronger country. Other peoples of the world remember this war very differently. Not because they wish it had ended differently, but because the costs that were paid were incommensurate. We need to remember in the morality of history, it often has a great deal to do in terms of our understanding of the event with how much of a price was paid in order for us even to survive to ask the question. The issue of leadership becomes front and center in the study of history. It's not just that the great men make history, as is often uh, criticized by the great man theory of history. It is that if you look at history, it's hard to explain it without the role of very significant individuals. Two of those individuals in the 20th century who require our very careful attention are Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill. Andrew Roberts has given these men attention in his book entitled Hitler and Churchill, Secrets of Leadership. If you're interested in leadership, much less in Hitler or Churchill, this is something like indispensable reading. Now, Andrew Roberts, when you discuss Hitler, you describe him as a charismatic leader. When you speak of Winston Churchill, you speak of him as an inspirational leader. Can you help us to understand that distinction? Yes, they're two very, very different things. Um, charisma is an artificial construct. It's something that can be, can be learned, can be taught, can be uh, self-taught, which is something that uh, Adolf Hitler did. He used to um, engaged in various tricks. One would see this uh, with his speeches, some speeches that when you actually see them on the TV now, you tend to get the, uh, the ranting and the screaming and the raving. And uh, that comes very much at the last, the end, the last five minutes of his, uh, of his speeches. Up until that point, he had been subtly building up his audience to, um, to, a, uh, to a fever pitch. He did this through oratorical tricks. He would uh, slowly get louder when he was speaking. He would shorten his sentences, and he would speak faster. And uh, all of those things, without anyone quite knowing it, would, uh, would, would get them um, excited. And um, that was a, a, a classic secret or a trick of leadership that he used, a, a, a form of uh, charisma that he would uh, use on people. He'd also stare at people and not blink, and the kind of thing that you or I would get over by the age of about seven, those kind of games, were still used by the Fuhrer really up until um, the last parts of his life. And there's no doubt that he had this charisma, because generals who believed that they were beaten and went back to uh, Hitler to tell him that they were beaten, uh, would come away from, uh, from meetings with him, um, infused with the idea that they were going to, to win. Now, of course, it helps enormously if you have the whole of the Nazi state 
um, Lenny Riefenstahl's films and Albert Speer's rallies and um, Joseph Goebbels' propaganda all working for you at the same time. But Winston Churchill had none of this. He had no speechwriters, he had no um, spin doctors, he had nobody uh, doing his PR for him. He really depended on a completely different uh, oratorical style. Um, again, one that uh, appealed to the, uh, to, the, to the heart and the gut, but, uh, but also to the intellect. And he was somebody who was inspirational because of what he said as opposed to the way that he said it. I think that is a very crucial distinction. One of the amazing things that I think that uh, perhaps Americans observe, uh, those who are at least watching such things, is that in Great Britain, since the period of the Second World War, and especially uh, into the uh, 80s and the 90s and beyond, there's been a lot of revisionism on Winston Churchill, uh, figures such as Clyde Ponting and Christopher Hitchens, who have, who have really tried to destroy Churchill and to suggest it was a Churchill myth. You know, try as I may, as much as I admire Churchill and try to imagine how it could have been otherwise, I, I can't come to terms with how Britain, or for that matter, the Western world, uh, could, have, uh, could have survived but for, humanly speaking, the emergence of someone like Winston Churchill. Well, that's right, and he put into words, as I say, that you know what he was saying was something that uh, the British people desperately needed to hear in 1940 and 1941, and which uh, really uh, the rest of the civilized world needed to hear as well. Um, what you have to do, I think, slightly with regard to people like uh, Hitchens and um, Ponting, and indeed David Irving, is to um, see where they're coming from. Usually, they have uh, political stances, political opinions. Uh, and they come from either the right or the left or wherever, uh, or maybe they're just trying to be uh, perverse, which I think is uh, probably the case in Christopher Hitchens' uh, uh, point of view. Um, and uh, I wonder to the extent to which... Um, I, I've reviewed all of three of those people and uh, uh, reviewed them very critically uh, indeed. And, um, and frankly, the, the facts that they present in order to help their, uh, artic- uh, their case, in order to back up their case, simply don't do it. When you look at the, uh, the notes in the back of the books by, uh, by Irving and Ponting, um, they don't, in fact, correlate to the arguments that uh, they make inside the text of their books. And so this is really, in a sense, um, completely uh, unacceptable historically. It's not, uh, it's not a fair way to deal with Winston Churchill and something I think that needs to be, uh, needs to be faced and exploded, really. From a uh, standpoint of academic uh, history, the uh, two volumes that exist of the biography of Churchill by William Manchester are, are, are not the most uh, documented, but they might be the most lyrical. And uh, in, in the preface to that first volume, William Manchester mentions that uh, Britain desperately needed a leader who was a Manichaean, who understood the difference between good and evil. And one of the points I think that you continuously make, both explicitly and implicitly in your books, is that a moral understanding of history is absolutely necessary. It, it, it was... It was morally necessary that the Allies defeated Hitler. It was morally necessary that uh, the fascism be defeated. Well, that's right. I mean, the uh, the sheer horror of what uh, the world was forced to undergo in the uh, 19, um, late 1930s and 1940s was, as we mentioned earlier, unnecessary and therefore morally wrong. Um, there, there should be a sense of, uh, of outrage that uh, Adolf Hitler should have been able first to have taken over a country which is um, a uh, the country of, of, of Beethoven and Schiller and Goethe, and then to turn it into this uh, this monstrous killing machine in the course of which 
he, of course, attempted to entirely wipe out the Jewish race in uh, Europe. Now, these are these are vicious crimes against uh, against mankind, uh, the worst crimes, really, in the whole of human history, and they must be seen in that regard. They must be they must be denounced properly. They must. I, I, a work of history which just looks at the mechanics does not seem enough to me. There, should, there must also be an element of. Um, uh, of, uh, of strength of purpose, of moral purpose, of didacticism, really, in order to uh, to understand the horrors of that uh, of that decade. Let me ask you to respond to two other writers that uh, I, I know you will know in terms of their arguments about World War II. Both Nicholas Baker and Pat Buchanan, in their own ways, have argued that World War II was an unnecessary war. Uh, let me just ask you to respond to those revisionist arguments. Well, I've again, um, I've taken both on uh, Nicholson Baker in his um, in his um, book Human Smoke, a, uh, a truly disgraceful uh, work of um, of um, supposed literature. He certainly knows absolutely nothing about the Second World War, as is clear from his book. And uh, again, you look at the notes; they just have nothing to do when you go to the original sources with the arguments that he attempts to make from them. Um, the second person uh, that you mentioned, one was Baker. Who was the other one? Pat Buchanan. Oh, yes, Pat. Yes. <laughs> well, I've debated against Pat Buchanan. Uh, we had 2,000 people turn up to the uh, Central Hall in Westminster, uh, the Methodist Hall in Westminster uh, last year, to uh, debate exactly this. Was the Second World War necessary? And uh, you'll be pleased to know that uh, whereas 181 um, people voted for him. Uh, One thousand eight hundred voted for my side of the uh, of the argument. We had a very good, a hard two-hour debate in the course of which he frankly belittled the Holocaust. Um, he uh, said that it wouldn't have happened had uh, had Churchill not forced the war on Adolf Hitler. Uh, frankly, this is just totally unhistorical. It's ahistorical. Um, and it's uh, of course a monstrous thing to uh, to say at all. So I, I, I enjoy, uh, frankly, taking on these, um, these revisionists. They, um, uh, they always have the great lacuna, the great Achilles heel, which is that unlike writers like Sir Martin Gilbert or um, William Manchester, as you mentioned, um, or I hope myself, uh, they don't really rely on the sources. They try to use the sources to alter the record, and, uh, and that will not work in the end. I raised the question, and uh, I was able to predict your response, quite frankly, and appreciated it, uh, precisely because, uh, I have to say, I think the big issue there is that neither one of them is willing to face the reality of the fascist evil. And, uh, and uh, the fact is, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation, that fascism equals war. And, well, the uh, trouble is, you see, a lot of people just assume that Hitler was yet another um, German statesman. This was the problem that A.J.P. Taylor um, caused when he just uh, wrote his book, The Causes of the Second World War, uh, back in the 60s, and tried to argue that Hitler was no different, really, from Bismarck or Frederick the Great or any other German leader. And he's just completely wrong. The ideology was everything for Hitler. The reason that he invaded uh, Russia was because he wanted Lebensraum for the master race, he wanted um, to kill the Jews, half of which lived in, in the USSR in 1941, and he wanted a final battle against Bolshevism. All of those things are ideological. And they wouldn't have driven 
um, Frederick the Great or Bismarck one iota, but they mattered completely for, uh, for Adolf Hitler. So he's an entirely different kind of statesman um, than uh, we'd ever seen before. In one of your most important, if not uh, most massive books, A History of the English-Speaking People Since 1900, you basically bring us up to date from where Winston Churchill left off in his four-volume work that won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and that is A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. So you have added a fifth volume, and you mentioned four different onslaughts. Uh, First, Prussian militarism, uh, the second, fascist aggression, the third, Soviet communism, and the fourth, Islamic terrorism and uh, and its allies. Why the fascination with the English-speaking peoples? And I ask that, as, as at least I remember that uh, it was Bismarck, who close to his deathbed, was asked about the one great fact that would shape the history of the world, and he said the fact that Americans speak English. Yes, it goes to the absolute heart of it, doesn't it? Because as well as the fact that we have um, similar law coming from the English common law, coming all the way back really to Magna Carta, and that we have the same uh, attitudes towards the free market and the uh, and capitalism in general. That we have um, much of the same literature, of course. Uh, this this really uh, is all bound up with the fact that we speak the same language. That uh, that your country um, and ours are so uh, intertwined historically. And. Um, uh, it, Bismarck appreciated that that was going to be the key factor of the 20th century, and so it has proved, because uh, America, when it became the hegemonic um, power, uh, had fortunately, ever since Teddy Roosevelt and Lord Salisbury, good relations with the um, with the British Empire. And so as the British Empire um, subsided and uh, it was eclipsed, the American Republic uh, came up, and uh, there were no clashes between them, thank God. And so instead of having a, uh, a weakened English-speaking peoples, we were able to have a force for civilization which, again and again, as you mentioned, um, has had to face barbarism and, uh, and various mutations of fascism in its, uh, in its various uh, guises. The latest one of the, as you say, um, is, uh, is the fundamentalist um, fascist totalitarianism of uh, Islamofascism. And, you know, in a, in a sense, we're very fortunate that we've done it before. We've done it before again and again. We're constantly uh, historically attacked out of the blue. Um, so 9-11 can be seen, I think, in its historical uh, context, uh, certainly obviously that of Pearl Harbor, but also other attacks in the past. And so, you know, it, it means that if we do learn the lesson of history, which is that the British and the Americans should stay strong and stay together, uh, we're more likely to be able to survive this onslaught than, uh, than if we were separated. You have given a great deal of your life, uh, indeed, to the, to the task of writing history and interpreting and understanding history, speaking to an audience uh, that is interested in history. Affirm for us in your own words why the understanding of history is so important. Well, it's it, to, to walk through um, to walk through life without a sense of history is almost like trying to walk through down a street without any memory. It's all about memory. It's all about the past. It's all about uh, who you are. It's about identity. It's about uh, what Edmund Burke uh, said: not um, not being um, left bereft at the moment of crisis because you have instincts. You have things that you can turn to deep within yourself that um, make you who you are. And uh, if you do have that, if you do have that star to guide you, 
um, and intellectually, it ca- it can only come from what your uh, what your forefathers and your and your country have uh, done in the past. Then you at least have a a path. It might not necessarily be the exact path. It might not be the same path that you want to take um, years down the line. But it is at least a path which is in the past in our countries. Um, because of our victories over these various mutations of fascism that I mentioned earlier, uh, something that has proved um, good for us and uh, and worthwhile, and something that it is worth been uh, it has been worth um, losing um, losing good people over. And so it seems to me that to try to just to to rewrite history like those revisionists that we mentioned have, or to ignore history, to pretend it hasn't happened, to put it behind us 100% and look solely into the future, would be um, like trying to, um, trying to cross the ocean without a GPS system. That conversation with Andrew Roberts was absolutely fascinating. To talk with an historian who has dealt with so many of the issues, events, personalities, and, and crises that shaped the 20th century and are issues of such vital interest to us, well, it was just a good experience. I also had enjoyed greatly reading his books and over the years coming to have something of a knowledge of his mind, his understanding of history and historiography. But when it comes to the conversation, I'm glad we began mostly with World War II. Not just because his most recent best-selling book is entitled The Storm of War, a one-volume history of that war, but because the Second World War brings to an absolute and undeniable focus the fact that history matters. One of the issues that I credited to Mr. Roberts in terms of the way he considers history, writes history, surveys history, is that he makes clear, as we said, that it could have been otherwise. Oftentimes, people read history or look back at history as if these events were inevitable, But those of us who are Christians need to remember that we have to read history with a providential understanding. We need to understand that God made human beings as responsible moral actors. And human beings, both alone and collectively, make decisions that matter. Looking back to the 20th century, we see this in many different twists and turns, certainly in the tremendous tragedies of the First and Second World Wars, but of course with other issues as well. And that's where Mr. Roberts helps us by not just focusing on the Second World War as he did in this most recent book, not just focusing upon Hitler and Churchill as he did in a previous work, but also on the history of the English-speaking peoples, which was his way of getting at, more or less, the history of the world in the 20th century. The moral perspective of history is absolutely indispensable. It is often the case that we think we know exactly what happened and we draw a moral conclusion prematurely, but far more lamentable is the contemporary temptation, certainly among postmodernists and others, to refuse to make the kind of moral verdicts that are absolutely necessary. This is no time for the moral disarmament of historians. And for those of us who have to live with the kind of memory of what happened in the past in order to understand the challenges and crises of the present. It really did matter that fascism was defeated. It was inevitable that either fascism would win and or it would lose. And if you look at it in that perspective, what would have happened in the alternative history had Nazism reigned supreme in Europe and beyond is virtually unthinkable. It's not only a matter of world politics and economics, it's a matter of genocide and murder. And as former U.S. National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski said, megadeth. I'm very thankful for the view of leadership that is illustrated by the men, Churchill and Hitler, 
considered by Andrew Roberts in one of his previous works. It's really important to understand that distinction, isn't it, between charismatic leadership and inspirational leadership. A charismatic leader who invents a personality and uses all kinds of manipulative means in order to to sculpt a public image and a, a brand or a persona that could be led to manipulate millions of people. Versus an inspirational leader who does have undeniable rhetorical talents, as did Winston Churchill, and an inflexible, indomitable will, but also the force of argument. And I appreciate what Andrew Roberts makes clear, and that is it had to be won on the force of argument. Churchill's point had to be not only more convincing, it had to be true. And it was upon the truth of of that understanding of the world and that understanding of Hitler and that understanding of right and wrong that there were those who were willing to fight a war and to endure all of its carnage and all of its hardship and all of its terrors in order to defeat something that was even worse than the reality of war. When we look at the study of history, it's very important that we understand that it's not merely an academic discipline, though it is a very important academic discipline. It is an essential mechanism for understanding who we are. We have no idea who we are. We have no idea how to understand ourselves without putting ourselves in an historical context. Thus, it is a matter of our very important intellectual stewardship as Christians that we intentionally do our very best to frame an historical understanding that is true and that is made meaningful through the lenses of the Christian worldview. We look back at history not only as an event list, we look back at it not only as a chronicle, we look back at it not only for crying out loud like did Henry Ford as one event after another, we look back in order to say it could have been different. It did happen this way. Moral actors were responsible individually and collectively. History has its victors and its victims, and sometimes they are the right victors and sometimes they are the wrong victors, and it really does matter. It is very important that we understand that history is not just one thing after another. It is a moral test of human beings. It is indeed a diorama of Genesis 3 and fallen humanity. And reading a book like The Storm of War, and I very much hope that you will read it, will for Christians remind us that when we look at history and when we consider the present with the eyes of the gospel, we are to yearn for the kingdom yet to come. Human history underlines, as does perhaps no other knowledge, the reality of the need for redemption. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Andrew Roberts, for joining with me today. You can hear our program on Stitcher Smart Radio and on iTunes. You can download for free today at stitcher.com or at the app stores. You can also always hear it at albertmoeller.com. For more information, go to my website at albertmoeller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmoeller. For a host of resources, go to albertmoeller.com or to sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.